What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to Phenomenon Radio, the show that covers thought-provoking breakthroughs in the fields of UAP UFOs to discover fascinating truths, first-hand accounts, and investigative insights into the expanding confluence of physical and mental exposure to this worldwide phenomenon hosted by world-renowned experiencer of the 1980 Rendlesham Bentwaters UFO incident John Burroughs and Emmy award-winning investigative journalist Linda Moulton Howe and now leading off the program here's Linda Moulton Howe John Burroughs and I began weekly broadcasts of Phenomenon Radio on July 30th, 2015. In the past four and a half months, we have had in-depth discussions with a range of people, including reporters, military attorneys, politicians, authors, and Christian pastor Ray Boucher. Some of our interviews have been with people who were working in RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge the end of December 1980 when unidentified aerial phenomena persisted at NATO's largest air base for 72 hours from December 26th to 28th. Out of at least some three dozen military people there who were eyewitnesses, our host, John Burroughs, is the only person described by base personnel as being engulfed by red-orange light on December 28th and two nights before on December 26th. John was described by witnesses as, quote, taken up by or jumped up on a UFO in Rendlesham Forest, close quote. Also at Phenomena Radio, we have repeatedly discussed the UK Ministry of Defense, DI-55, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Scientific and Technical Report, also known as Project Condine. John and I consider this MOD report confirms the reality of the UAP UFO advanced technology and its non-ionizing radiation. According to the MOD report, that UAP UFO radiation can manipulate human minds and damage human tissues, including our phenomenon radio hosts, heart and eye tissues. Those 460 technical pages were produced by the Defense Intelligence Staff, known as DI-55, for the MOD in 2000 as a UK top-secret eyes-only report, and then quietly, under the radar, was unclassified in 2006. 
It can be argued that the Condine Report is about unidentified aerial phenomena that can be considered in at least three categories. First, extraterrestrial or time-traveling or other dimensional intelligences from off-planet and or based underground on Earth. Second, advanced human technology deliberately hidden by government agencies behind controversial and confusing UAP UFO phenomena. And third, other dimensional spiritual warfare with good and bad guys that camouflage on Earth as human political and religious forces. Supporting an extraterrestrial explanation in our phenomena radio broadcasts have been controlled remote viewer Lynn Buchanan, former Airman First Class Larry Warren, and in his official June 25, 2009 press release, former RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge Deputy Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Charles I. Halt told me in August 2009. I wish to make it perfectly clear that UFOs I saw were structured machines moving under intelligent control and were operating beyond the realm of anything I've ever seen before or since. I believe the objects I saw at close quarter were extraterrestrial in origin and that the security services of both the United States and England were and have been complicit in trying to subvert the significance of what occurred at Rendlesham by use of well-practiced methods of disinformation. Colonel Halt was reading from his official press release for an earthfiles.com news report that August 2009. Then he added some other observations. We had several strange airplanes come in almost immediately thereafter in the next few days. I'm told some teams came through, and some of the security police did say there's some very unusual people with strange uniforms, Americans. Americans. Mm-hmm. Colonel, could you explain when you refer to disinformation being used by both the British and the United States governments, could you explain what you mean and why do you think that disinformation would have been used so intensely about the Bentwaters incident? I believe disinformation was used to make the incident appear so ridiculous that it would be beyond belief to the average person. I did not know at the time, but hypnosis apparently and some type of mind-altering drugs were used. Do you think that it is peculiar that you as deputy base commander and being one of those in Rendlesham Forest on December 28th in those early morning hours, that you were not debriefed or asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement or told in any way not to talk about Bentwaters? To this day, I can't understand why I wasn't at least approached and told, hey, be quiet, don't say anything, you know, sign a non-disclosure statement or at least been brought in, so to speak, to what was going on. When you speculate about why, what do you think? I think I was left hanging out there to dry. I was the dupe, and I was very trusting and naive at the time. And that others in your colleagueship in the military, as well as your superior officers, had more information that they did not share with you? There is no doubt in my mind that they had more information. And today you call it an extraterrestrial origin. What has convinced you or provoked you to say that now 30 years later? When an American writer by the name of Larry Fawcett came to the 3rd Air Force, which was the American Air Force headquarters in England, under the Freedom of Information Act, and found out there was a copy of the memo available, 
I got a call from the then acting Third Air Force Commander, Pete Bent, who was a friend of mine, and he said, I've got this document. I'm going to have to release it. Well, first I was upset that he had a copy and more upset that he was going to release it. And I told him, don't release it, that his life and mine would never be the same. He said, I have no choice. I have to release it. And this is the famous Halt Memo. That's correct. That was never meant for public dissemination. What convinced you then and now that what you and the other men over those three nights at RAF Bentwaters and in Rendlesham Forest was, in fact, of extraterrestrial origin? I've had correspondence with several of the parties involved, especially those that were in the weapon storage area and adjacent to it or working in it, have come forward and corroborated on a lot of the information, and there's no doubt in my mind now. Thirty years later, you're convinced that it was of extraterrestrial origin. I am. Is there anything specific that convinced you? The different witnesses and the fact that I'm now able to piece together the role of a lot of the people, such as the security police commander, the OSI commander, my then wing commander, and realize that, that I've been had. Meaning that there was an extraterrestrial event, but you were kept out of the loop of the critical information? That's correct. Some of the stuff I can't discuss with you because I did sign non-disclosure documents had nothing to do with the incident itself, but it does tie to the incident, and I can't really relate them. After this short break, former CNN investigative reporter Chuck DeCaro and Lincoln, Nebraska, UFO investigator and theologian Ray Boucher will join me and Phenomenon Radio host John Burroughs for a roundtable discussion about various sources of the high strangeness phenomena, ranging from extraterrestrials and or time travelers and or other dimensional intelligences to advanced human technologies to other dimensional spiritual warfare or all three being behind the lights and beams and physical impacts on military personnel in Rendlesham Forest near RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge, the end of December 1980. You're listening to Phenomenon Radio Live with Bentwaters experiencer John Burroughs, an Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist and Earth Files reporter and editor Linda Moulton Howe. Tonight's roundtable special with Ray Boucher, Chuck DeCaro, and Linda Moulton Howe will begin right after these messages. Don't go anywhere. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Find the podcast on Spotify, iHeart, Audible, and Apple Podcast. Get the best on the X. Thanks for joining us on Phenomenon Radio for tonight's Roundtable Special. To kick off the beginning of the interviews in the Roundtable, here's Linda Moulton Howe. Thanks, Race. We left off with Colonel Hall talking about the memo that he had written about the phenomena in Rendlesham Forest and that he never expected it would see the light of day and that he felt like he had been used, misused, and abused as deputy commander at RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge back in 1980 when it was released under Freedom of Information Act and sent off all of the dominoes falling that have brought him and so many people into the three and a half decades now of investigations and reinvestigations about what happened in Rendlesham Forest. Now, this memo is worth going over in detail for the panel tonight because it is something that is extremely sensitive to Colonel Halt, and it has been extremely controversial including that he didn't have the dates all right through the memo as an official deputy base commander. It is on Department of Air Force Stationery. The date is January 13th, 1981, which means that he wrote this approximately two weeks after the events on December 26th to 28th, 1980, which was right after Christmas week, going into the new year of 1981. The topic is unexplained lights, and it is directed to the Royal Air Force, and it begins paragraph one. Early in the morning of December 27th, uh, December 1980, and as we go through these dates, we know now that the three nights were December 26, 27, and 28 after midnight. And for some reason, the 26th is not referenced, and he references uh, what would appear to be the 29th. And we do not know why these dates were not correct when he wrote them in 1981, being deputy base commander and being a man who was meticulous in most all of his work. But nevertheless, as you hear these dates, know that the correct dates are December 26, 28, 27, and 28. Okay, so now paragraph one. Early in the morning of December 27, 1980, at approximately 0300, two U.S. Air Force security police patrolmen saw unusual lights outside the back gate at RAF Woodbridge. Thinking an aircraft might have crashed or been forced down, they called for permission to go outside the gate to investigate. The on-duty flight chief responded and allowed three patrolmen to proceed on foot. This is the John Burroughs. Jim Penniston, Ed Kavansack, the trio that after midnight on December 26th went out into the forest. They actually went in a pickup truck. The individuals rejected seeing a straight, reported seeing a strange glowing object in the forest. 
The object was described as being metallic in appearance and triangular in shape, approximately two to three meters across the base and approximately two meters high. It's interesting metallic is used because Jim Penniston referred it to it as black glass. This illuminated the entire forest with a white light. The object itself had a pulsing red light on top and a bank of blue lights underneath. The object was hovering or on legs. As the patrolman approached the object, it maneuvered through the trees and disappeared. At this time, the animals on a nearby farm went into a frenzy. The object was briefly sighted approximately an hour later near the back gate. Paragraph 2. The next day, three depressions, one and a half inches deep and seven inches in diameter, were found where the object had been sighted on the ground. The following night, he says December 29th, it should have been the December 27th, the area was checked for radiation. Beta-gamma readings of 0.1 millirankins were recorded with peak readings in the three depressions and near the center of the triangle formed by the depressions. A nearby tree had moderate 0.05 to 0.07 millirankin readings on the side of the tree toward the depressions. And about the date, it may be that he is talking about the third night when Colonel Halt was out in the forest with several men and they were taking Geiger counter readings, but we know now that was after midnight on December 28th, not the 29th. And he does not mention the very important middle night of December 27th, 1980. Paragraph three. Later in the night, a red sun-like light was seen through the trees. It moved about and pulsed. At one point, it appeared to throw off glowing particles and then broke into five separate white objects and then disappeared. Immediately thereafter, three star-like objects were noticed in the sky, two objects to the north and one to the south, all of which were about 10 degrees off the horizon. The objects moved rapidly in sharp, angular movements and displayed red, green, and blue lights. The objects to the north appeared to be elliptical through an 8 to 12 power lens. They then turned to full circles. The objects to the north remained in the sky for an hour or more. The object to the south was visible for two or three hours and beamed down a stream of light from time to time. Numerous individuals, including the undersigned, witnessed the activities in paragraphs two and three, signed Charles I. Halt, Lieutenant Colonel, U.S. Air Force, Deputy Base Commander, again, January 13, 1981. And a footnote, Colonel Halt also told me in one of my recorded interviews that one of the beams of light that came down after midnight on December 28th, the same night that John Burroughs was going next to Adrian Bastinza, and Adrian Bastinza said he was pushed to the ground by what he thought was the red-orange light that he saw from lying on the ground looking up, that the red-orange light engulfed John Burroughs. And then Adrian could get up or was lifted up by some power that he thought that the light had. And in a previous phenomenon radio in August, that is the only time that Adrian Bastinza has talked on the record. He said that in the light that came and engulfed John Burroughs, he saw what he thought was a fuzzy television looking silhouette 
as if there was some sort of an entity inside of the red-orange light that as it engulfed John Burroughs, another one of the puzzling uh, eyewitness accounts that nobody fully <clears throat> understands and John Adrian does not understand. But when Colonel Halt was standing there and everybody was working around him, he said one of the beams of light came down like a narrow white laser that hit the ground only about five feet from his shoes. And he told me that he wondered if it was an act of aggression. The first question I've got for you, I'll start with you, Ray. When you first learned of the memo and read it, what was your take on it then? And what was in it? And how long after did you find out the dates possibly wouldn't be correct? And how important does that take to you? I'll start with you, Ray, then go to Chuck and then finish with Linda. Well, when I when I first encountered the the memo, I you know I thought well this is I, I mean it's intriguing because you you've got an actual document that's referencing a contemporary event, you've got uh, you've got an event that happened just a couple of years couple earlier. Years, right? The dates never disturbed me a whole lot because my guess was that due to from what Halt has said. You know, he he was asked to he wanted to prepare this or was asked to prepare this for the RAF um, liaison, and so he did that. And I don't know that he was, you know, I don't know he was really cognizant of of all of the uh, of, of quite of the importance of what had happened. And just I think it was just an honest mistake that he he mixed the dates up. Linda, I used to wonder if Colonel Halt deliberately fudged the dates because it is possible from other information that we have, Colonel Halt was in the forest possibly on the middle night. And this comes from people who were at the East Gate. They were, uh, one was on the East Gate and uh, that was a female, uh, Bowen, and there was a Trementazi who was a friend of hers who came to the East Gate because he had seen a bunch of lights in the forest and they were all, they were talking and listening on their walkie talkie. And they said that they were hearing and that this was definitely the night after midnight of the 27th of December, that they were hearing Colonel Halt on the walkie talkie. And they also heard an emotional exchange between Bonnie Taplin, who was the D-flight uh, uh, head that night in security, and that there, Robert Ball was in the forest. And all of these uh, voices that were heard by two people who have gone on the record with me in recorded interviews describing what they heard. And yet, for all of us to get detailed information from anybody who was in authority about the night of December 27th seems to be the most difficult night. And there is an implication that there was something dramatic with a gun and other events in the forest. Now, so it might be that it was a calculated misuse of the dates in order to cover up something on December 27th that they definitely did not want to describe. And so the date in his official memo about what was the uh, Jim Penniston, John Burroughs, and Ed Kavansack event, and then his night, which was the 28th, he called the 29th. I don't know if it was calculated or it was an honest mistake back then, 
But today, as we're talking on December 10th, 2015, it is very clear to me in all of the reporting work that I have done now for uh, years is that there was something significant that happened in that middle night. And what we know the most about are, is the after midnight on the 26th and the 28th. And Chuck, I'll throw it to you. Uh, we want, we're, uh, we wanted to know what you thought on the rereading of the Halt memo uh, before you were disconnected. Um, well, I mean, when I get my first copy of that um, 30 years ago, 31 years ago, um, you know, I the thing that struck me is it's an Air Force document, and everybody in this thing was described as being in the Air Force. So it was unique to me that I'm having read a lot about flying saucers since the days when I was a kid. It's the first time I ever saw anything where it was all active duty people experiencing um you know, this kind of unexplained, as they call unexplained lights. That's what attracted me to it uh, then and now. What The reason why I maintain an interest in this uh, isn't about UFOs, but it's about those young airmen whose lives were distorted, many of them distorted, because of what happened that night. And... My feeling about that is, before I go off and point to extraterrestrials, what else could have occurred that was terrestrial, uh, either a mistake or an on-purpose event, that could have caused the dysfunction of, you know, half a dozen or more young American airmen? Okay. Second question to you guys, um, the, the Hall tape. I, you know, it's been circulated around for years. It was released. <clears throat> All three of you got a chance to to listen to it, probably some more than others. But what stood out to me was the fact that it's real time. It's actually a tape that was recorded as they were out in the field, what they were seeing, what was going on. When you first listened to the tape, what did you take off of what you were hearing them say and how they were acting? And one of the things that I want to zero in on, and hopefully you guys will too, was there was a point when Colonel Halt went into what was happening to them and the way his voice sounded and everything else. So, Ray, I'll, I'll give you the first crack at this one. Yeah, John, I, I was really intrigued by the by the Halt tape when it when it, I first got my hands on it. And it was uh, you, you definitely sense the emotions of, of what's happening out there and that here's here's a here's a full bird colonel in the Air Force who's out in the field. And he's seeing things he can't explain. He's not getting any answers from the base, evidently, because he's that there's just no explanation for what he's seeing. And I, I think that um, I think that emotional response, both of of uh, from Colonel Halt and from the from the men that you hear in the in the field, Nevels and so on, uh, Bastinza, you you get the sense this is. This is re- this is the real deal. This is something that's that's actually happening, and they really have no idea what it could be. the the tones of the tone of the voices is what really convinced me that this is absolutely not uh, a, a group of guys stumbling around in the forest looking at the lighthouse revolve. I mean that was you know that initially that was the the major explanation put forward for it. Uh, that just doesn't hold any water when you listen 
to the tape. So it's a, it's an impressive it's an impressive uh, item. Okay. Linda? Yeah, and looking at the uh, transcript from inside the forest and you had Neville uh, it was uh, Sergeant Neville's who was handling uh, the Geiger counter equipment and Colonel Halt keeps calling for him to give him readings which is in real time and it's on the audio halt uh, on the uh, tape and halt is setting, saying we are getting readings on the tree uh, you're taking samples from on the side facing the suspected landing site and uh, also england is working where monroe nevels is and says and they're giving how many clicks they are getting and that the very fact that they are referencing a tree and they've got two men who are giving Geiger counter readings to Colonel Halt and it is recorded means that this is something that they are at a site. It is a physical site. They are looking at the depressions in the ground that were formed like a tripod. They have one side of a tree that is giving uh, readings and all of the depressions, the three depressions in the triangle are giving them readings. This is from the 26th. So they're at a physical site where they have anomalous Miller-Rinkins, and then they have the lights moving around in the sky, changing color, speed, hovering, and putting beams down, one beam so close that it alarms uh, Colonel Halt. This is a huge scene with many people, and they are clearly focused on a site that they went to, and that's why they're there. Chuck, um, one other thing I want to ask you about. When you listen to the tape, at one point he refers to a night bird. Can you explain what that possibly could have been besides your take on the tape itself? Uh, A what? A night what? A night. We saw our first night bird when, when he's going into the tape. Is there any kind of a military nomenclature to that? What they could have been saying they saw? Well, he. Uh, well, let me just go back back up um, for several counts. One, the whole paint wasn't in true real time. It was it was his his um, little personal secretary tape recorder that belonged to Colonel Hart Paul, not the Air Force, that he used to make notes on. As was the um, the fad with executives back in the early 1980s. If you notice in that thing, we CNN were the first to to translate the document. We went to one of the uh, the uh, forensic audio experts who worked on the Watergate tapes, and at some good cost to CNN, we did the transcript. <clears throat> the one thing that that um, got me was a bong, you know, B O N G, as in a church bell, in the middle of all that. And it turns out it wasn't a church bell. It turns out that Previous to this, Colonel Halt had recorded his daughter's piano recital or piano practice, and in between, you know, stopping the tape and starting the tape, you get this one distinct note that goes bong right in the middle of the tape. Are all of you familiar with that? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, Chuck. But Chuck, it is a real-time taping by Halt out in the forest with the men. Yeah, but it's not, it, it wasn't constant for the whole time that they were out there on and off, on and off. All I'm saying is, you know, I want to clear up the issue of, of real time. It wasn't for the entire incident through the entire night. It was on and off as he made notes in his little tape recorder. 
What you mean, it was clicking on and off, and the segments that are there are real-time at oh, no, that yeah. moment, yeah. but it was not running for the three or four hours they were out there. Uh, affirmative. That's exactly the, the point of fact I wanted to make clear. The other thing was that, that, that Holt was uh, the deputy base commander. He was a lieutenant colonel and not a full bird colonel. So, uh, you know, we want to try to keep this as accurate as possible. I think John, isn't that correct? He's a... Uh, he was a lieutenant colonel, and uh, only later when he went to the AWACS shop did he get promoted to uh, 06. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, he did get promoted after the incident. He was a yeah. lieutenant colonel at the time. That's right. I, I, mis- <clears throat> I misspoke on that, John. I did. Right. Right. So, and from there, Chuck, I mean, listening to the tape, what they were describing, what they were seeing, what went through your mind, being an investigative reporter? Well, I, you know, I, again, I, when I did the CNN report, I played both sides. I said, okay. Here's what witnesses said. Here's what the the uh, naysayers said, and I tried to keep it as evenly balanced as I could. Um, the um, when you guys all remember Philip Class from Aviation Week, who was Mister Mister UFO debunker and, until his passing, and he he was the first one that I know that noted that the sightings were in in time with the lighthouse. I also filmed the lighthouse. Um, in the distance, and you could see, and you'll see in my CNN report, that the illusion created by a night scope or a television camera was like, as Colonel Halt described, as an eye blinking, as the as the television camera receives the light energy and then it fades. It looks like an eye blinking. So, you know, I, I'm not saying it was the lighthouse, but the lighthouse via my report, also looked like a blinking or uh, an eye winking at you. It didn't go instant on, instant off. It was on, fade off, on, fade off, on, fade off. So whatever phenomena, you have to understand the characteristics of both the television camera and night vision scope to, um, to understand the phenomenology involved with sources of energy at which the scope is pointed. But... We have Adrian Bastinza's uh, testimony in August, uh, the one and only on the record, where he is talking about his experiences in Rendlesham Forest and how after the last time that he was out there, which would have been when uh, John, when he says he saw John Burroughs engulfed in the red-orange light and that Adrian said he was pushed to the ground by the light and he's looking up when he sees the light engulfed John that it was uh, sometime um, after that a car comes to where he was and the barrack says that they uh, want him to come with them. Uh, he doesn't feel that he has any choice because it's a government car, but he doesn't know who they are. They're strangers to him. They first take him to Woodbridge and then they take him back to Bentwaters and he says they take him over to what he referred to as the camera shop and that they went into this building and they went down a hallway into an empty room with a table and chair and he was ordered to sit down and he said, I don't want to sit down and that proceeded to go into um, some hard uh, words between the people he could not see because the way they had the room lighted, uh, there was uh, dark and then there was something in front of him in a silhouette. He didn't know what it was. Uh, he could never see any details outside of a 
a human or humanoid silhouette, as he said. And they, um, at one point, they even shut the lights off so it was all dark. And yet he said that a light of some sort seemed to jump in front of him. And then the uh, whoever the voices are, they began playing hardball. And what they were saying to Adrian was, we are here to tell you that you are seeing a light from the lighthouse. This is a direct quote from the August interview. And they, uh, he, Adrian, says, no, what I saw was green, it was blue, it was orange. Uh, there was a point of light. One of the lights broke out into about five different smaller lights. I said it was like a big ball. And then it burned like fireworks. And he continues to talk about seeing this explode. And the person that is intimidating him becomes very upset and says uh, that what you're telling me does not exist. It did not happen. I'm telling you what you saw. It was the lighthouse light. And Adrian tries to argue again. And the man says, quote, son, bullets are a dime a dozen. Do you understand me? And Adrian tried to argue yet again, and the man came back, raising his voice even more, and he still couldn't see the man, but he said, I told you once, and I'm going to tell you for the last time, because bullets are cheap, they are a dime a dozen, what you saw was the lighthouse. And from Adrian Bastinza's point of view, this was a calculated effort on the part of someone unidentified to force him to say the lighthouse when he knew that that was a lie. Okay. Um, But that treatment doesn't necessarily mean that whoever this voice in, in, in the shadows was, was trying to cover up a UFO. What it could mean is it could be covering up a nuclear weapons incident or accident or close call. Remember that, that we learned later that nuclear weapons were kept at, uh, at bent orders. And um, just as a supposition, what if, you know, they happen to, these, these authorities happen to be there right away? That's kind of interesting. What if, let's go back to 1980 and look at, the height of the Cold War, the Bader Meinhof gang and the, the Red Brigades wandering around Europe raising almighty hell. And, um, you know, you're talking about an Air Force security police detachment guarding nuclear weapons. And there were very great conventional threats, or conventional in the sense of, you know, terrestrial threats that looked at. John, could you tell us a little bit about your briefings on on Red Brigades and Bader Meinhof and Soviet Spetsnaz regarding nuclear weapons? <laughs> well, what I, all I'll tell you is is that the, at the time, you know, of the incident prior and afterwards, there was an increased security threat for possible terrorist activity. And interesting enough, you know, terrorist activity was going on as far back as 1980, as far as it was in the news, but it was more in Europe. But mm-hmm. there was not really any talk of any Russian activity other than there was an increased activity over in Poland. All that stuff was taking place besides the whole thing that was going on with Iran also. Yeah, but who was funding all that terrorist activity? Good question. I'm really not sure who was behind it. I mean, at the time I was, uh, you know, an E3 just doing my job. I mean, a lot of the terrorist stuff, the threats were supposedly out of Ireland for us. So. Yeah, well, here, 
here's the other thought, John, is at the time, what could get you more more trouble in the Air Force than mishandling anything that had to go with nuclear weapons? Anything. Well, I, that I can't argue with, period. But here's the scenario, though, at the time. Um, based on my experience with nuclear weapons at other bases, um, there's certain protocol when they would be out and everything. And at that point in time, the Air Force wasn't even putting them on planes and, 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 and putting them in the air. Right. You know, the, the, after they had some incidents where they actually dropped some or had a plane crash, that stopped happening. And I can just tell you, at that time, we, we were in the Christmas holiday season. So there was nothing going on when it came to any of that whatsoever. And, John, we should add here what Rick Bobo told me on the record. He was up in the weapons uh, storage area tower, and he was puzzled that when he tried to call Central Security Control and say there is a red and blue glowing sphere in the sky uh, not too far from the tower going toward Rendlesham Forest, and it's large, he said it would compare in his mind to the size of a full moon, and that he saw little white lights come out of that red-blue sphere down into Rendlesham Forest a couple of times that when he called Central Security Control, they simply said to him, we have it taken care of. And he said no one ever came to debrief him and that he watched this red, blue, moon, full moon-like sphere uh, not putting anything down into the weapons, the nuclear, the tactical nuclear weapons storage area, but hanging in the air between his tower and Rendlesham Forest for at least a couple of hours. And he said in the recorded on the record interview that it was the night that he heard Colonel Halt in the forest with a lot of people. And he remembered, he thought, hearing a reference to John Burroughs from Colonel Halt, and that would make it the night of December 28th. And that would mean that Rick Bobo in the WSA Tower said that there was nothing that he knew that was interacting, but he didn't understand why there was not active and immediate interest by central security control in whatever this object was that was hanging between him and Rendlesham Forest. Okay, the next question, and, and I want to do this individually, so I'm going to start with you, Chuck, okay? When we had you on last time, you were clearly leaning towards, and what I mean by leaning towards, you said you had to take a look at everything possible that could have went on there, and you were more towards the technology end. Based on the memo and what it described, um, based on the interviews you did with the individuals, including Colonel Hall, the tape itself, what you the studies you've done over the years on our technology and what we're capable of, and you did basically at one point I think talk a little bit about gravitics. What do we have? What do we have then, and we've developed since that could explain some of the stuff that's even on the tape where something flew at him and beamed the light down at his feet. Well, it's really interesting that um, everybody's describing lights, but. Um, and beams. Lights, you know, uh, at least the people I talk to saw lights, but they're all different. Um, um, the the character that I identified as Airman Greg saw, if I remember that, he's, it looked like a big aspirin tablet, about 12 feet across, just lying in the grass, you know, just a, um, 
uh, in the ground fog that was common. It's, that's pretty pretty close to what he said, um, which is different from what Larry Warren saw. Um, and again, we're talking different nights, I think, but the lights they saw seemed to be different in in the explanation of each individual witness. So I, I kind of wonder, um, in the uh, reports that I did later at CNN on on radio frequency weapons, um, this kind of stuff um, could be generated, at least um, at least theoretically, could be generated by some kind of device, electromagnetic device that interferes with human mind function. Um, I went to see um, Dr. Robert Becker, who had been no nominated for Nobel Prize a couple of times, and he was the guy that the U.S. government hired to go to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow when it was being irradiated by Soviet microwaves in order to eavesdrop on what the ambassador's secretary was doing. The way they did that is the microwave beams, using a process called interferometry, intersected over the ball of the of the secretary's IBM typewriter, and because the ball has peculiar um, peculiar um, positions as it stamps each letter into the uh, onto the paper, uh, by using interferometry, the uh, the Soviets could learn exactly what the ambassador's secretary was writing, no matter how top secret it was. Now, the, the, the side effect is that everybody in that building was getting leukemia at some very high rate. Now, that's the stuff of science fiction when you're considering this was in the 70s when this was going on. Um, if, um, when I talked to Dr. Dr. Becker again, he wrote the books The Body, Electric, and Cross Currents, talking about on-purpose and accidental interference through radio frequency energy whether it's E-vector or H-vector or RF, uh, on human physiology and psychology. And uh, as you know, in another CNN report, I guinea-pigged an experiment where I was subjected to a modulated magnetic field and could see images uh, of a uh, oscilloscope uh, being operated in another room and transmitted through a modulated magnetic field. So I can tell you that, um, you know, things like artificial telepathy uh, and seeing things or imaging things that are not physically there uh, in front of you uh, is possible. And that, that's from 1980s technology. It's 30 years later, and I could see that, you know, uh, could there be some, some analog, let's say, to smoke on the battlefield? You know, the idea is an obscurant so that you can't see or you can see as, it, as the smoke wafts by, you can see clearly, and then it, then it's a little foggy, and then you can't see again. That's uh, a weapon being used against um, the eyes to to uh, render optical identification impossible. Could you create an electronic fog so that uh, you couldn't think clearly? I think the evidence stands, even with 1980s technology, the answer is yes. Um, well, so Chuck, I, it, it, you know, we sent the Project Condine with the links to you. And if you had any chance to look at that annex, F is in Frank, it states very specifically that that whole Project Condine, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Scientific and Technical Report by the Defense Intelligence Staff at the MOD, that 
uh, Annex F is entitled Potential Mental Effects on Humans. And one of its paragraph states, quote, the well-reported Rendlesham Forest-Bentwaters event is an example where it might be postulated that several observers were probably exposed to UAP radiation for longer than normal UAP sighting periods, close quote, implying that they have baseline records on exposure. But uh, John and I and others have understood that this is apparently in the terahertz frequency, which is something very unusual, uh, up near ionizing, but not uh, as high as ionizing radiation. That would be very, very different uh, from the um, body electric or smoke or any of that uh, that particular type. Oh, you know, well, I- what I'm saying is that if you can um, uh, generate uh, an electromagnetic field, whether it's microwave, millimeter wave, or higher. And, um, and remember, the higher you go, the closer you get to light. Um, uh, could you have uh, brain interference effects? And I think the answer is yes. But it's also interesting to note in my explorations of radio frequency weapons is these things work a lot like alcohol does. You know, some people can have two beers and be under the table, and other people can drink all night without very many ill effects. And so, too, when you're looking at effects of um, radio frequency weapons, and this might explain why, you know, different people are seeing similar things but not exactly the same. Um, you know, and I'm not trying to debunk uh, alien space vehicles. I'm just trying to make sure that we've looked at everything terrestrial that's possible before we make the, the, the leap to that or the leap even further to, you know, religious wars amongst the extraterrestrials. Right now, I've got. I'm sorry, I've got another follow up. Have you heard of dark beams before, Chuck? Dark what? Dark. They're called dark beams created by radars. No, I've heard of. uh, If we're talking about the same thing, I've I've heard about um, side lobes that um, can affect you, um, because you know the radar is pointed this way, and they're coming off off the side of the radar antenna, much like a headlight, you know, or a flashlight. Uh, has part of its beam deployed to its side, um, if that's what you're talking about, or are you talking about beams that intersect and have have different kinds of effects? Well, well both. And and when I found this document, it went into that they they discovered this in the early '60s with radar, yeah. and that that it creates a fog, that it will actually create a fog and, and a foggy effect. You know, in the area where it's what you said, it's going back and forth across. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with that. I'm familiar with um, the work of Dr. Alan Fry, F-R-E-Y, uh, who back in the 50s and 60s looking at things like people who could hear radar. And, you know, if you go, what? And uh, apparently some people could hear the pulse repetition frequency of certain radars. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of um, speculation. Some thought, well, it's being absorbed by the skin, turning to heat, settling the pulse through the blood-brain barrier, and being mistaken as sound. Other people are saying, no, it goes straight to the uh, to the the part of the brain that that um, um, converts hearing into thought, um, and it's affecting that directly. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we don't understand yet, accidentally, and a lot of stuff that we you know, kind of understand on purpose about effects of, um, you know, electromagnetic um, fields 
um, on humans. So sure. you know the, the know, one. Do you remember the, again? Aaron Greg talks about his hair standing on end. Do you remember that? Right. And so did John Burroughs and uh, Jim Penniston and Ed Kavansack said that the hair was rising off of their skin. Yeah. And guys, I don't want to interrupt. And Ray, I want you to jump in with what you're about to say, but we got to take a break. When we come back, Ray, go ahead and and bring your point up. And then I got a question for you after that. Sounds good. Race. All right, folks, that wraps up the first hour of tonight's roundtable special. Stay right where you are as hour two begins in just a moment. You're listening to the KGRA DB, your choice for UFO paranormal talk radio on the World Wide Web. We're KGRARadio.com. You're listening to Phenomenon Radio. We'll be right back. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Taking paranormal talk radio to a whole new level. The Unexnetwork.com. We begin hour two of tonight's roundtable special with Ray Boucher, Chuck DeCaro, and Linda Moulton Howe, hosted here by John Burroughs tonight. But first, it's time for Phenomenon News, brought to you by TheEarthFiles.com, reported and edited by Linda Moulton Howe. Linda, it's all yours. Thanks, Race. Well, since March 6, 2015, when the JPL NASA Dawn spacecraft moved into its first mapping orbit at 1,270 miles above that dwarf planet Ceres that's out there between Mars and Jupiter, the world has asked, what are those bright lights in the Okotter crater? Now, Dawn is entering its lowest mapping orbit yet. By Christmas, it will be 240 miles above the Ceres surface, and scientists think that they have some answers. This week on December 9th, a team at Germany's Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research reported in the journal Nature that spectroscopy of the bright lights or spots indicates they are not exotic alien city lights, but are probably, quote, a type of magnesium sulfate called hexahydrite, close quote. The data is not yet exact, but the hypothesis is that the bright white areas are rich with salts left behind when water ice sublimated in the past, maybe within a few million years. Then the salt deposits would be exploded outward onto the crater surface after asteroid or comet impacts. Scientists estimate there are some 130 other similar salt-rich areas on Ceres, and that, quote, the global nature of Ceres' bright spots suggest that this 600-mile diameter world has a subsurface layer that contains briny water ice, close quote. And that means there must be some radioactive material inside Ceres that is heating up its internal ice to a saltwater solution that periodically erupts onto the Ceres surface. A huge surprise to all who thought the asteroid belt was only a swirl of lifeless rocks. 
Adding to the mystery of Ceres' origin is the discovery that all over the dwarf planet's surface is spectroscopic evidence of ammonia-rich clays, which are usually only found much further distant in the Kuiper Belt and beyond in the outer regions of our solar system. Does that mean that Ceres began much further out and was somehow knocked inward to its current orbit between Mars and Jupiter, a strange dwarf planet with a radioactive core that heats underground water ice? Could that liquid water ice explain how the only one four-mile-high shiny groove mountain on Ceres was created? There's only one, and it is called Ahuna Mons in the Southern Hemisphere, about 400 miles from the Northern Hemisphere bright spots. It's the only big mountain on Ceres, leaving speculation that it is a cryovolcano that periodically erupts, building a higher and higher ice mountain. But no one has answers to what the narrow, precise grooves are running parallel down all around the big mountain. Or why Ahuna Mons is dark on one side and bright on the other. Or why there is no rubble around the base of this huge mountain. Or why there is only one four-mile-high mountain on Ceres. And everyone is baffled by the deep crater right next to the mountain. Scientists are now counting smaller craters on both to see which might have come first, the crater or the gigantic ice mountain. For more in-depth news about Ceres, our solar system, and the universe, where Earth telescopes and radio receivers search and listen for signs of other life, go to my award-winning news website, earthfiles.com. That's going to do it for the news. And John, take it away. Thanks, Ray. As we went to break, Ray, you were just about, we were talking about the technology part that could have affected what happened in Reynolds and Forest, and you were just about to make a point. If you'd like to go ahead and do that. You bet. Thank you, John. You know, I think, Chuck, you're you're absolutely right. I don't think we can, my opinion is, I don't think we can jump to any uh, certain conclusion as to exactly what happened there. Um, You know, I, uh, the EM fog sort of thing uh, has been, raised to me was raised to me many many years ago um as as a possibility uh could it have been some sort of um some sort of experiment in mind control um uh, fogging the minds of people but i i i find it hard to imagine that they would just randomly test that on a group of soldiers out in the woods um i, I mean you remember that in the 1950s, the United States Army loosed lysergic acid diethyl amide on unsuspecting troops. They were volunteers, but they didn't know what they were volunteering for. And but see, that's it. They were volunteers. Yeah, they were volunteers, but they had no idea they were going to be dosed with lysergic acid diethyl amide, LSD. And then they were asked to go through a bunch of physical training, you know, obstacle course and that kind of thing, and the films are... Uh, if they weren't tragic, they'd be hilarious. Um, Absolutely. So, um, yeah, you know, you know, the military has done things like this in the past out of um, out of then secret uh, necessities. For instance, the Army um, conducted biological warfare tests using what they thought was a um, uh, was a uh, bacterium that was basically harmless. And they released it in an aerosol form, I believe, in San Francisco, again, late 50s. 
and they would use um, they would tap into municipal blood tests that were taken for um, uh, marriage registration. At the time, you had to, have to take a blood test, and you know the military looked at this for sampling to see how this uh, uh, allegedly uh, harmless bacterium would spread. <clears throat> and nobody knew that until decades later. So you have to go easy uh, because there may have been things, and there have been there may have been what were thought to have been necessities at the time that could have created the situation. Um, you know, you know when you're testing weapons or or trying to cover up a failure of a test of a weapon. And I think that's you know I think that's a perfectly plausible possibility. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's just one of many that, that are out there. The, in, in my estimation from the, from the folks I've talked to, um, from my experience with, with, uh, Jim Exon, uh, and his responses to, to queries, I, I, I believe something happened. Uh, yes. there was something of a, of a physical nature that interacted with the environment out there. I don't know what it was. I have no idea. Um, well, but, Ray and Chuck, uh, yeah. you both have uh, been given those links to the uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Report that we also call Condine Report. Yes. And uh, there must be a reason why Charles Haltz has concluded that it's extraterrestrial in his own words. Well, on in Volume 3, Chapter 3, there is this statement – what sort of technologies might be necessary to achieve the reported, and they're talking about the unidentified aerial phenomena, the reported almost instant accelerations, decelerations, maneuvers, and high velocities. At the level of human understanding, this level of performance appears to imply the negation of inertia. Even if this was possible to achieve at some stage in the future, in technological terms, it would have to take place in an unmanned vehicle. Humans could not withstand, at least in our current knowledge of aviation medicine, the significant acceleration and deceleration forces which would be involved. And this is in the context of the description in Volume 3 that goes into great detail about the unidentified aerial phenomena that this MOD study was focused on and was the context for Rendlesham Forest as a reference that in the Rendlesham Forest event is an example where it might be postulated that several observers were probably exposed to UAP radiation for longer than normal UAP sighting periods. And it says an important fact is that the reported effect of UAP radiation on humans is, is that it is quick acting and curiously following the UAP event, there is little or no recall of events as a continuum. In short, the witness often reports an apparent gaps or lost time, often not accounting for up to several hours. It is described as though the exposure causes a temporary memory erasure, close quote, and John Burroughs has not been able to remember what happened to him, even though other people observed him uh, over the last 35 years. Yeah, I think that's I think you raise some some excellent points there. I mean, I I don't know. The Project Condine report is I mean, it's fascinating. I've been through all 460 some pages of it. Um, 
they raise some they raise a lot more questions than they answer. That's also true. And I think I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rick. Oh, I say yeah. I I, I really think it's um, uh, yeah. It could have it could have been a lot. It could have been a lot better. But at least they did something. They made a stab at at something. And I think it's remarkable with uh, that they did release what they did. I I think we I think we're looking at some sort of technology that at least we are not aware of, uh, and it could very well be extraterrestrial. Uh, you look at what. Uh, ben Rich said years ago, the the director of the Lockheed Skunk Works, mm-hmm. when he said, "You know, there there, Star Wars, we can do that." Yeah, he said there there are things that that are unimaginable that we are capable of doing now, and when you think that you know the stealth fighters were uh, were available twenty years before anybody was it was ever announced, what? what has been developed in the last 25 or 30 years that we'll never know for another 25 or 30 years. So, I mean, is it human technology? Is it extraterrestrial technology? But I do think it's, it's a technological, it's a technological event of some nature. And it's certainly, it's something we can't explain here. And Ben Rich said, we can take ET home now. That's right. And he referenced ET and there are so many whistleblowers who have talked about firsthand uh, face-to-face with non-humans that I think we have to give some deference to the fact that there have been people in military and intel who have talked before they've died. Isn't, that, isn't that Nick Pope that we're talking about? <laughs> no, I do have a question, though, Chuck, that I want to get your take on. But, Linda, I want hey. to say something, and I want you to read a par- or a little piece hey. of a paragraph. Um this guy that did the Condine study, he, he was hired by the MOD to look at classified documents. I mean, I, I don't think people understand that. These were classified documents that they were holding, okay, up to UK secret, which is pretty serious, okay? Linda, I want you to read the one part he said about Reynoldsham about the exposure to radiation. Okay. In place. This is repeating the paragraph that is under uh, Annex F, and it's titled Potential Mental Effects on Humans, quote, The well-reported Rendlesham Forest Bentwaters event is an example where it might be postulated that several observers were probably exposed to UAP radiation for longer than normal UAP sighting periods. And that was followed a couple of paragraphs later about the fact that it causes gaps or lost time. And it also said uh, in uh, two paragraphs later Quote, it is concluded, therefore, that if some UAPs, as is believed and correlated by actual reports, such as what happens to car electrical equipment, the UAPs produce electromagnetic radiation, and then there is a high probability that the UAP radiation can affect the human brain. And that it also stated that it assumes that UAP is a radiation plasma or charged mass source with effective aperture shown, and they showed different diameters that they had measured in different cases in the Condine report where there had been some kind of uh, physical um, interaction with UAPs and estimates of how big they were, what the size were. However, this should not be confused with the large triangles, rectangles, 
and other large shapes reported. So Condine is specifically talking about geometric shapes. And in volume three, chapter three, page two, it references again these masses that they're talking about in which allowing for variations in human descriptions that we are talking about massive dimensions significant mass given the enormous dimensions often described of the UAPs. Okay. Now, Chuck, based on his looking at these documents, would it be not fair not to say that there was some kind of baseline that he was looking at when he made the statement that we were exposed above normal background UAP radiation? Yeah. And it would have been studied. It can be so nebulous because he's calling unknown aerial phenomena. He's not saying alien space vehicle. No, no, no. And I'm not trying, we're not trying to zero in right now on alien space vehicles. What I'm saying is there would have had to have been some kind of classified documents talking about people being exposed to UAP radiation, correct? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, somebody had done a study somewhere on um, on ionizing or non-ionizing radiation. I'm sure there's been lots and lots of studies over time. And, right, and where would they? Where would they? How would they base this study on? Where Where were they drawing this from? This technology, from? I, you know, I, my sense is that um, when you're doing studies like this, it's either because someone has described something that's deleterious to to humans, you know, like standing next to a, a QRC radar jammer, and uh, you know, trying to see if it's working by putting a test light up against the antenna while you're standing next to it with your groin, um, you know, or someone has found from somebody else's technology that, gee, maybe we ought to get in on this. Um, the, the, to go back to, to our friends, the, the then Soviets, um, somebody talked about the Soviets' technological and also mystical. Well, the Soviets have been interested in, um, I guess they call it bioplasma, they talk about uh, human interactions with uh, electromagnetism. And going back to the, the turn of the, uh, the 20th century, 19th to 20th century, and, um, you know, they continue to believe in uh, all kinds of phenomena having to do with uh, magnetism, electromagnetism, radio frequency energy, and electricity that we tend to poo-poo here. Now, because of that, uh, one of the things uh, the Soviets were working on back in the day was something called the LIDA machine, which put out pulses of RF energy. And we found out about it, and um, from that sprang a whole bunch of research, to including the CIA's MK Ultra study of brain control, um, springing from what we understood the Russians were doing. And, you know, there was... You know, spy versus spy, back and forth across the Cold War, a war to see, you know, who was getting further advanced in this field. And that's why, again, I return to, um, you know, height of the Cold War, terrorism in Europe, strange weapons both sides are working on. <clears throat> okay, now my follow-up question to that is, based on Condine, your mm-hmm. work within the DOD um, and the different documents and people you've interviewed over the years, what is a UAP? What are they saying the UAP is in these documents? What's your take on what a UAP is? Yeah, they use a, they don't use a broad brush. They use a roller. Anything that 
that they don't understand. Unless they're trying to make a point to um, bring attention away from something they're trying to hide, you know, it's a broad brush. It could be anything. I mean, you could throw, do you know what sprites are? Um, kind of like lightning above the clouds, sprites, you ever heard of those? Yeah, yes. but yeah. that's not down in Rendlesham Forest. Well, no, I understand, but I'm, I'm trying to say the military tends to use a broad brush when they're talking about UAPs. It could be anything. So, and again, there, there are uh, things that they do. We now know, for instance, the CIA and the Air Force were busy promulgating UFO stories to hide the U-2 in the 1950s. I think we've all read, you know, stories about that. So, you know, when you're talking about uh, misinformation, deception, Moscarova, that kind of thing, the Condon report could be a smokescreen to get you looking over in this direction because there's something over there that they really don't want you to know about. Or it is unidentified aerial phenomena that emits a certain kind of high frequency that may or may not be in the terahertz range and that it could damage the mitral valve in John Burroughs' heart. You know, interestingly, Linda, what I, in, the, in the Condine Report in, in, Annex, uh, in Volume 2 in Annex F, page 5, in the summary – they mention that uh, it's not certain that the radiation fields are conventional and electromagnetic in nature. Right. I mean, so they're speculating. They don't even know for certain what the cause is. So I, my take on this, because Mr. X, as, um, as some folks have dubbed the, the unknown author of the Condine Report, um, because he had this enormous database of classified information to pull from, uh, we can't it's it's so nebulous we can't pin anything down but he's he's making some statements that would at least seem to imply that there is some information about some very odd things verified uh, verifiably odd things that uh, are it that were in that database <clears throat> that he uses to draw these conclusions and that he references the massive they're referred to as enormous masses, and they include shapes that are triangular, spherical, and cylindrical. Yeah. So the, that seems uh, specific in terms of anomaly. Uh, I'm, we're not aware of human aviation technologies that are putting large, massive, 300-foot-long cylinders in the air, for example. Oh, blimps. No. <laughs> Not, <laughs> but touche. Uh, but, but Sorry, Linda. In, okay, Chuck. In the context, uh, Ray and Chuck, uh, here is one brief paragraph, and I would like to address this to Ray. This is in Jenny Randall's uh, book uh, called "From Out of the Blue," and this is where she is quoting the uh, anonymous uh, Steve Roberts uh, that is used as a false name. And he told uh, Brenda Butler and uh, Jenny quoted from uh, their interview in this book where Steve Roberts said that he personally, as a security officer at RAF Bentwaters, that he saw beings. And we're going to uh, surmise that it was that middle night on the 27th of December without knowing. But he said, quote, the figures were small, about three feet, two inches tall. They all seemed identical and wore silver clothing that covered them all over. 
A beam of light was coming from beneath the object, and they were suspended in this, the light, hovering in midair. They seemed to be trying to repair their craft as if it had been damaged by some impact. The commander went forward. He ordered everyone, and the commander is identified in this particular context as Gordon Williams, the Mm -hmm. base commander, went forward. He ordered everyone else back. He seemed to communicate with these small beings. I heard no words but saw gestures that might have been a form of sign language. I also felt that telepathy was involved, and many people saw this, but we were told to keep quiet, close quote. Now, we've heard a variation on that from Larry Warren, but Ray, this also would be a physical description that you and I and the few of us who have interviewed people in the human abduction syndrome have heard many, many times from many people all over the world. Countless times. Countless times. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very – it's a very uh, – you, you hate to use the word. It's It's a very – mundane sort of sight uh, in terms of if you've got a lot of exposure to um, uh, to investigation into the abduction phenomena. Um, there has been that undercurrent from the beginning, from the first time I started to um, begin to get in touch with, with John and with Adrian Bastenza, um, <clears throat> this idea that there were, there were a number of witnesses who said that they had, they had observed Small humanoid entities, creatures there. Um, and that Gordon Williams, the base commander, not Halt, that's was right. there. And we know that Halt was there at <clears throat> least on the night of the 28th. And the uh, people at the East Gate say that they heard on the walkie-talkie Halt in the forest on the night of the 27th that we have the least information about except – uh, perhaps from the Steve Roberts and Warren and others, that something on that night involved small entities, beams, and perhaps Gordon Williams. And it's, you know, there is, uh, Chuck brought up earlier, you know, how do you, how do you get all these various uh, different stories? And I, I sort of look at this in terms of the the trauma that's involved in this event Take into account the the traumatic nature of it, just psychologically and emotionally. Uh, take into account the the Project Condine statements about the uh, uh, these radiation fields affecting the mental processes, and then try to wrap it all into one big package. Is it any wonder that you've got a group of of um, a dozen or more people who have various perceptions of what exactly happened uh it's like if you put if you put witnesses on four corners of an intersection and there's an accident and you try to get them to describe it you're going to end up with a number of different stories um ray i'm curious since you and i have the common background of the writers and the writers communicated through you to me about their concern that there was a very negative aspect uh, one of deception and uh, illusion on the part of the unidentified flying object phenomena. Do you have a perspective in 2015 looking back at Bentwaters or anything else you've investigated about the nature of something positive or negative or neutral in all of this? 
You know, I I think when I when I look back at the Bentwaters thing, what I see is thirty thirty five years on now. What I see is an event that that looks to me to be uh, a technological event, something that a physical event that happened. I I'm not seeing other than the very obvious physical damage that occurred to John. Um, I'm not seeing a great deal of 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 what I would call negativity or deception on the part of this. It just in terms in general of the incident. Um, I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know what happened. I wish I did. Um, you but know, the right said he was cut out of even uh, being involved with the upper chain of command. Absolutely, and I, you know, I don't. Uh, there are so many puzzling aspects to this. I don't know why uh, Holt wouldn't have been. Uh, why wasn't he debriefed? Why wasn't he pulled in and and asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement? I mean, he certainly had to regarding the the nuclear weapons that he knew were on the base. Um, And there were men there who have testified on the record and have uh, been in interviews with me who said that, including Jim Pennison, who said Halt debriefed him. Yeah, yeah. Why would you? I I mean, there are just there are so many. So many bizarre aspects to this, just from the conventional military conduct that you would expect. Um, I, I there, you know, it, there is, there are just, there are so many questions. I think we're getting, we're getting a better sense, thirty-five years on, of uh, of the overall picture, but we don't have any way to really understand exactly what um, what the nature of it necessarily was. And whatever the phenomena is, it definitely could be picked up on radar because it was uh, just this summer, July 13th, 2015, uh, a couple of days before, actually on the 11th in England, that retired uh, Colonel Charles Halt was speaking before the Woodbridge Community Hall uh, on Saturday, July 11th in Woodbridge. And he said, quote, I have confirmation that Bentwater's radar operators saw the object go across their 60-mile or 96-kilometer radar scope in two or three seconds, thousands of miles an hour. An object came back across their scope again, stopped near the water tower. They watched it and observed it go into the forest where we were. At Watersham, they picked up what they called a bogey and lost it near Rendlesham Forest. Whatever was there was clearly under intelligent control, close quote, Charles Halt. Yeah. I, I mean, there is there is the uh, another, not the smoking gun necessarily, but uh, there's another person who saw the, sm- <laughs> the smoking gun. Uh, because, you know, we, we've, we've, you go back to the original events and you have the stories of the confiscation of, of the radar tapes and so on from, from various installations. Uh, some, they're, they're trying to hide something. I'm not sure what it is. I, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's well beyond, um, any sort of conventional aircraft accident. Um, what if it is time travelers as Penniston has said that I, you know, that's as, as things stand, that's as likely a possibility as anything. Great. And, and I don't want to interrupt, but we'll do our last break. And, and then when we come back, I want to read something to you that was in Condine and then get you guys all your opinions on that as we close the show. 
We'll be right back with the final segment of tonight's program on the best choice of alternative talk radio on the planet. Don't go anywhere. Explaining the unexplained. The new unxnetwork.com. Welcome back to the final segment of Phenomenon Radio tonight's roundtable special with Chuck DeCaro, Ray Boche, Linda Bolton Howe, and host John Burroughs. On the Rendlesham case, once again, here is John Burroughs. Thanks, Race. Um, before I read this little statement that was in Project Condine, and I want people that are listening to understand, Nick Pope was on a couple weeks ago and went into the to what uh, UKI's secret only means it was a it was a highly classified report, not the whole report itself, but parts of it to include some of it still classified. But within this report, it says in here it goes the unidentified aerial phenomena that it exists is indisputable, credited with the ability to hover, land, accelerate to exceptional velocities, and vanish. They can re- reportedly alter their direction of flight suddenly and clearly can exhibit aerodynamic characteristics well beyond those of any known aircraft or missile, either manned or unmanned. Okay, before we close the show out, I'd like to get your take on that, um, Chuck, first, and then go right down the panel with that. That statement says a lot there, does it not? Yeah, it does. Um, You know, again, uh, depending on where you are in time... um, I think Arthur C. Clarke once said you could bump across a race who who were so technologically advanced that anything they did would appear to be magic. But as we we got came along, we learned about piezoelectric effects, for instance, where you see these balls of light flying around the sky, uh, and then we find out that they're they're uh, electromagnetic phenomena caused by um, you know the the grading of tectonic plates just prior to an earthquake. And, you know, that came as a shock to a lot of people because those, um, you know, uh, balls of plasma uh, uh, make those kinds of novelistic uh, movements that one associates with um, with UFOs. So, again, I, I feel like I'm channeling Phil Class tonight. I'm not. I'm just trying to say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, so that we stay balanced uh, on this. Okay, Ray, what's your take on that statement? You know, I again, I I have to go back and and look at it through the lens of this enormous database of of classified material that that Mr. X, the author of the Condine report was was working with. The this was a secret report. It was not uh it does not appear to me that it was idle speculation. Um you know, he's not uh, he's not identifying these things as alien craft, but he's making a very cogent observation that these things are doing things that are beyond the realm of, of our laws of physics to understand and biology, because you can't, you can't put a living creature in something like that and make those kinds of moves at those kinds of speeds and expect not to just be a grease spot on the wall. So I, I think there, again, there's a hint there that they are talking about or making an assumption is maybe a better way to put it that at least a number of these things uh, may very well be 
technological machines of some kind. Right, but to interject, to go back to Mr. X and the Condine report, if he's got a smorgasbord of classified information, is he taking from the entirety of the file, or is he picking those pieces he wants to reveal? I didn't see anywhere in the Condine report saying, this is every bit of information we have on this thing, and I'm, I'm just giving you the overall um, look through it, or saying, well, uh, under U.K. classification rules, secret, uh, this is what I found. But then is most secret and something above that. We have no idea who the author is, obviously well, somebody in power, nor do we understand what his classification uh, level would be, nor do we understand how how much more classified the most classified item is. And yes. there are so many pages that are blanked out that they yeah. have been redacted entirely throughout the 460. And in uh, the volume three, uh, which is uh, chapter three, and it is paragraph six, sort of uh, reinforcing what John led with, but going even further, this is reading from the Condine Report, quote, there is the question of the frequently reported merging and demerging of smaller craft with larger ones. These are usually triangular and sometimes oblong or diamond-shaped. In air operations, we currently have at least some caution in linking up flying platforms for the comparatively simple task of air-to-air refueling. And yet, these smaller triangular UAPs seem to have little trouble in merging or separating rapidly into or from their so-called mothership, in quotes. Finally, as these entities can also reportedly appear and disappear at will and have intelligence, one could surmise that they could also decide when and whether to be visible to humans or not, close quote. And we know that in some of the leaked documents over the last, uh, since the 80s, that there have been whistleblowers who have talked about being in projects where they have been back engineering as an assignment in three categories, invisibility, projection of three-dimensional holograms, and neutralizing gravity and controlling gravity to the point that if we could do what the non-humans can do, we could assemble everything by using gravity. Yeah, it's you know I, I'm I'm struck by uh, what David Clark and Gary Anthony the the report they wrote on Project Condine for IUR International UFO Reporter, and they you know they summarized and said that the key finding from a ufologist perspective in this is that. The author states it's an indisputable fact that some UFOs or UAPs are generated by an unknown phenomenon. Now, on the surface, that seems pretty innocuous because we are talking about UAPs and UFOs. But to come out and state that it's not stating it's an unknown natural phenomena. He just say it's an unknown phenomena. So I, I think there are, you know, again, there I, we have to be cautious with it, but I think there are, I think there, I think, I think it's safe to read in something more than just a casual report. 
And uh, Chuck, you're absolutely right. If we had the if we had access to the whole database to see what he what he chose and what he ignored, man, we'd be light years ahead in understanding the significance of it. Yeah, Ray, let, let me go back. You know, last time I gave John the willies by saying, "Here comes John, uh, covered wagon, faded um, <laughs> giant, broken arrow." He, yeah, I, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, to this day, it's 30 years later. And John still shakes when I mention those words. <laughs> right, John? Um, and so, I just can't, I can't I, talk about it. Yeah, you see? You can talk about UFOs. You can talk about non-iodizing radiation. But I, I tell you those words, and you shut up. Okay? <laughs> Which indicates to me there, there are secrets, even after the mistreatment that you've, you've had to endure after all these years, there are secrets you're willing to keep to your grave, aren't there? There, there are some secrets that may go to the grave with me. I mean, <laughs> at the same I'm laughing time, with you, John. Not laughing at you. I understand. Um, but at the same time, within this report, which to me, this report, and I know Linda doesn't like it when I do this, and I'm not trying to say ET doesn't exist or what we encountered in Reynolds Forest could have been ET. But what I am saying is that there was a couple of things that stood out to me in the report. Number one, so much of it's still redacted. And then cross-reference the FOIAs I did with the MOD, catching them in a lie, admitting they were still holding documents, even after they said they released them all. And within uh-huh. it, the policy papers, six different docs policies were held back. And one, two of those policy files clearly show when they changed from UFOs to UAPs. I tried to get to nail Nick down on that, and he wouldn't answer that. But the other thing in Condine it says is there's a race by all the major world powers to figure out what this is and to weaponize it. Mm-hmm. So there's something to this. And and you, you, you give me a hard time about non-ionizing radiation. You you don't want to talk about that too much either, now do you, Chuck? What do you get into that exactly no, how no, they use military I, applications? Let me let me back up a little bit. I, I'd be happy to talk about non-ionizing radiation. But um terahertz? Back, back to those secret words. You know, you were guarding these nuclear weapons. And what really disturbed me, even at the time of the CNN report, is not a word. Usually you know, it's common in the continental United States around the missile fields. You know, they've got a Minuteman that's, you know, 10, 15 miles away from the command center. And they've got a, a double fence around it. And some moose comes in and bumps into the fence and, you know, sets off the seismic sensors. And they launch a helicopter in whatever weather or, or certainly a reaction force in whatever weather, see what it is, it's bumping into the fence. And there's that that whole long list of, of paperwork that goes with it. And now you got, you know, lights. Uh, I'm not sure. Did the tower, the guy in the weapons storage area tower say they were over the, over the weapons storage area? Or Rick, be- Rick Bobo, he said that the big uh, full moon-sized red and blue lo- uh, sphere that he compared to the size of a full moon was between the WSA and Rendlesham and he saw no interaction between the red-blue thing and the WSA. And he stressed that because he had heard in an interview that Colonel Halt had said in a television program that from where he was, which would have been the night of December 28th, that he could see beams going down in the WSA. Rick Bobo was there hearing Halt 
that night through the radio. That's why we assume it has to be the same night, the 28th. And it was Rick Bobo who actually was upset because he's, he took it personally. This was his job to watch the WSA. And he said there were no beams or lights that came down into my WSA was the way he said it. Well, here's, here's, here's the thought. is if, if Chuck Hall saw the beams for sure going into WSA, why on earth did he not file all the reports that go with that? And then we're back to faded giant, broken arrow, all of that. You have to. I mean, it's a weapon storage area. But, yeah, but hypothetically, Chuck, when you get into that, it wouldn't be Chuck Hall's call. It would actually be it's preordained. Uh, certain things have to take place. Certain phone calls are made right. immediately. The on-site supervisor makes the call, not Chuck Hall or the ship commander. It and was Rick it would Bobo. Be, no, no, he's not. Bobo was enlisted, right, in the tower? No, 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 it, it, no there, there would be a, a shift supervisor in charge of that area. He would make the call, and it would be up-channel to CSC through the flight chief and the shift commander, and then from there, phone calls would be made to the command post, and then the command post would up-channel it from there. Okay, so all this would take place, but Chuck Holt would have no say on how that went because he has no control at that moment over over that area, number one. Number two, the thing with Williams that I've always said, I didn't see him out there, and he wouldn't have been out there for the simple reason. Wing commanders are different than base commanders, and what was taking place was a threat to not the, the actual aircraft necessarily, but the base itself, and it was off base, and that would go through the base function, not the wing function. The and wing remember- commander at most would be inside inside the command post while this was all going on. And remember, John, Rick Bubbo stressed that he called Central Security Control twice. And I talked with the guy who was down on the ground floor who said, yes, they were trying to reach Central Security Control about these, what they saw lights in addition. And yet CSC kept saying that they had it under control, which had to have been the halt party. Um, not necessarily. I mean, there's, there's so much that, you know, here, here's the thing that would break this open. I've always said this and it's, and and those tapes are classified and I know where you're going with this check and where's all the paperwork. Well, it clearly shows it was all classified. Okay. I, I mean, they told you, correct me if I'm wrong, that all those documents came up missing. Did they not? When you went looking for them? Well, they couldn't find them. Yeah. That doesn't happen. John, when I met you, when you were just a 19 year old kid, you were scared to death of me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, really scared. scared. No, I can't. I, yeah, because I was a 19-year-old kid. I was barely in the Air Force. Less than two years into my career, here I am out in the forest doing something I wasn't trained for. I don't care what people say. Oh, no, I'm you talking know, about when I met you in Arizona. Sure, I don't want to talk to you about it. Why would I want to get into the middle of it? Not only that, but then I've got a general from the Pentagon on the phone. I, I could proudly say that I knew John when he was skinny. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, ultimately, all the paperwork were classified. There's no way this stuff would all happen immediately if this was, like, the lighthouse, guys. I mean, I I hate to bring that up. But, you know, and the report that he wrote was sanitized a memo as far as unexplained lights. I mean... That was a crazy, stupid red herring that the government tried to impose on people. And Adrian Bastinza described what happened to him. The lighthouse was always a red herring. Oh, no, I, 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 Chuck Hall's memo, if I remember right, went to the base commander because that order didn't really belong to us. We leased it from the Brits. 
So we had we had to kind of explain to the guys that owned it, you know, what that party was we had the other night. And, yeah, but and that, that's, that, that, that doesn't add up either, Chuck, because based on my experience with the military, especially going forward, he, they the British were briefed on this. We were off base. We called the British police. They came in. The British Fire Department came out there on the first night. There, there was an up-channel uh, briefing sent to the MOD that we were out there in their, their force. That's just another part of the cover-up. Now, I, I can't explain the memo um, totally. I, I To me... If would you guys not agree if the memo never got released, we never we wouldn't be talking about this today. Probably yeah, and, true. Yeah. From what yeah. I understand, the only reason why that memo was there is somebody had a you know that triplicate copy went to somebody. I, I want to say in the reserve, and it, and it ended up in some oddball place that even the guys at Bentwaters who wrote it didn't know where it went, and it came up on a on a FOIA report that you Larry know. Fawcett filed. Yeah, Larry Fawcett did it, and then the, the, you know, it was purposely vague because you, they had the 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 tenants. We were tenants of the base. Had to to answer the local base commander's, um, I guess, inquiry as to what what the hell was going on the other night, and so that was it was very purposely vague. Um, you know, as the one chain, look who it was addressed to. It wasn't it, it wasn't in our chain of command. It was in the British chain of command. Mm-hmm. Right. And you guys, I there's one more really important sentence from Project Condine, which sort of goes to the heart of the whole question, could everything have been in, uh, done or being involved with weapons development or applying applications from what they were learning from the non-ionizing radiation to weapons development? This is, again, from Volume 3, uh, Chapter 3, Page 2. The majority of the causes of known UAP sightings cannot be replicated and cannot be used for military purposes. Quote, quote, close quote. That sounds like that they have run into such high strangeness that they can't duplicate, they can't control, and that bottom line they they would like to use what they're studying for military applications, but the sightings cannot be replicated and used for military purposes. And I see, I think that's exactly what the author was getting at when he makes a statement. These are generated by an unknown phenomenon, something right. that we can't replicate. Right. It's right here in the, <clears throat> the report. I, don't know, I, I can't imagine that um, that the military would not at least attempt to replicate uh, those things, I, I, you may not be able to replicate, but sure as you would sure shooting and want to be able to do the things they do, like ninety degree turns at ten thousand miles right. an hour. That, that could be useful. Yeah, you know? and it isn't yeah. that they didn't try to replicate; it's that they could not replicate. Mm. Yeah, I, so think, I guess. I think, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ray. Well, I was just going to say, I think the implication is there that that they must have been doing research along those lines, trying to trying to replicate it, and found out they just couldn't. It was right. it just wasn't going to happen. And then I think the twenty dollar question is where is it? Where is it coming from? It's there. They admit it's there. They admit it's going on. They admit they're studying it. They admit they want to replicate it. So what is it? I mean, I think if you go into, there's a possibility. Because they did tie Reynoldsom into this report, believe it or not. It was like one of the only things they really talked about in the report about an incident. Or they did talk a little bit about aircraft that had encounters with some of this and they had some issues with it. But 
So in essence, whatever we encountered out there, do you guys still think it's a mystery to the government itself? Do you think that, Chuck? No, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think it's as big a mystery as we're making it out to be. I'm sure there, that if if they have hard evidence and they think they can it could be a value, either for military applications or to um, you know prevent you know large scale panic. Um, I'm sure they have a better handle on it. But I, let me go the other way, so it, it doesn't sound like I'm debunking all night long. Let me tell you about what the government can do to cover stuff up. Um, have you ever, if I told you that the Japanese um, had a, an offensive air campaign against uh, the West Coast of the United States during World War II involving 8,000, at least 8,000 bombs, would you, would you believe me? Right, sure. and they sent them over balloons. in those little parachutes. Right. It was called Operation Fugo. But the reason why nobody knew about it is that we were busy covering it all up. There was a, uh, an African-American parachute regiment, the 555th PIR, Parachute Infantry Regiment, whose job was to, A, recover, if they could, these balloons and, and see what we could do about their technology, and, two, put out the fires that they did, in fact, cause up and down the West Coast. Then they were hooked into a, um, of course, we had an office of censorship and an office of... Um, War information at the time, so under the um, under the declaration of war, the president could do that. Um, but a good deal of this this information was passed around in the year or so the Japanese were busy with these balloons. One to prevent the Japanese from ever knowing that any of those things ever got here, so they wouldn't send more. Or two, figuring out a better, more accurate way to land those bombs on incendiaries. Three, there was the factor of panic involved bubonic plague because we knew for a fact the Japanese were, were dropping um, uh, fleas in, in, uh, in <laughs> these right. kind of wicker uh, <laughs> bombs that would go down on Chinese and, uh, you know, set, set bubonic plague in, a, in, some, uh, in amongst Chinese. We knew that, and we didn't want our civil population on the West Coast to know about it. So... Um, our government doesn't want us to know that there are other intelligences in the cosmos and that they are here in some form, the alien presence that was referenced uh, during the Kennedy administration. And that alien presence seems to be at the heart of the UAP. And one of the things we're going to try to do on Phenomena Radio in 2016 is talk with people about electrogravitics, electromagnetic uh, phenomena about uh, terahertz and what is something that we can bring to bear to try to flesh out some of the technologies that can be discussed in 2016 that might have been back engineered from unidentified aerial phenomena. But more likely, Linda, that you know that that tradition with the 55th continued on as a, as the Soviets got into rocketry and we wanted to, to grab whatever we could, could. Now, um, there were units in the, in the army and in the air force that would go after fallen pieces of Russian debris, uh, whole rockets or otherwise, um, and grab it and look at the technology. So, and keep it under wraps, you know, Keckberg comes to mind on that one. But, uh, we've been doing this since, uh, World War II when, the Polish underground found a V-2 rocket, and the British flew in uh, in the worst weather through Sweden, picked up the V-2 parts, and went back to England to, to examine it to see 
what countermeasures they might be able to apply. Um, Counterintelligence has always been great, Chuck, but at the heart of what counterintelligence is trying to protect us all from knowing anything about or keeping us from knowing anything about is an alien presence. Yeah, I understand that that would be something that you would want to work on to to, keep um, societies from being panicked. Unfortunately, we're just getting really rolling and we're out of time. So I want to thank you guys for coming on. And we'll definitely have to do this again in 2016, maybe as more information is released, to including some more of the MOD documents that they're supposed to sometime release in 16. Race, take us home. Tonight wraps up the final edition of Phenomenon Radio for the 2015 season. But we will be back next year with a brand new format for the program. And we are sure you're going to really enjoy it. A huge special thanks to Ray Boucher and Chuck DeCaro for joining us tonight. So for John Burroughs, Linda Moulton Howe, and myself, Race Hobbs, we want to wish you all a very, very Merry Christmas and a happy and safe New Year. This is the station that brings you the very best in paranormal talk radio topics on the Internet. We'll see you next year.